Hello everybody and welcome to the Digitally Uploaded Podcast on a bright and early Saturday morning. We are recording this so we are of course all in a very good mood. Actually we've all just got coffee and that's going to get us through this I think. I'm Matt Sainsbury, the Editor-in-Chief of DigiDownloaded.net and with me this week we have Matt. Hello Matt. Hello. Different Matt, not me. Hello, yes. Not a clone. <laughs> no. We're not talking trying, to myself. There, there is actually two mats on the podcast this week, so don't get confused, everybody. Um, we also have Trent, who's not Matt. Hello, Trent. Not Matt. I am also not Matt. That's great. That's good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We've established I don't this. have a coffee, and, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Priscilla, who's also not Matt. Hello, Priscilla. Not Matt. <laughs> Hello. I'm also not a Matt. And we've got you've got some some news. You finished your first Zelda game. This week, <laughs> yes, I finished Breath of the Wild two days ago, and I'm very excited. And apparently, so is Twitter. So, <laughs> congratulations! I'm still stuck on the opening plateau t- tutorial area. So oh, you need to finish it, Matt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> About a year amazing. in, I'm still stuck there. Well, like I keep telling you all, I'm stuck on that stupid frozen mountain, and I can't get past it, and I'm losing at the tutorial. And, and you know, it's this is what happens when you play 300 hour games in JRPs, and then switch to something amazing, which is art like Zelda, and then you're like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, no, sorry, Trent. <laughs> I, I hate to break this deal, but Zelda's not as good as a good JRPG. We'll get onto that a bit later on in the podcast, but for now, <laughs> let's kick things off with. Some Hatsune Miku music. We've got something different this week, which will make Alan very happy when he's editing this, I'm sure. Uh, this one is Happy Halloween, which is, I believe, a Rin song. Um, but if you go on YouTube and look around, you'll find all kinds of videos of people doing all kinds of interesting dance routine and stuff, because this is a catchy as anything song. And uh, we'll back right after you have a listen.
everybody i hope you enjoyed that song it is catchy like i told you so you're probably going to listen to it over and over again for the next week i'm sure i will um so the first section of the podcast this week we are looking back at the year that was or the half year that was i guess it is that time of year we are almost at the end of june and that means that we've basically played half the stuff we're going to play for the year and I don't know about you guys, but compared to the first half of 2017, I'd have to say 2018 is a bit of a drop in quality, but not that much. Um, it's been but pretty good. Qu- but not in quantity. No, there's been a lot of games to play, that's for sure. An awful lot of games. Um, it's, and there's been some real standouts, of course, and we'll get on to that in a second. But just speaking overall, uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm disappointed with what 2018 has thrown us, but. Um, it certainly hasn't been the year that brought us Near Automata, Persona 5, and Yakuza 0 within the course of like two weeks, which is what we had last year, which was something amazing, and we'll probably never have that again. I think that's fair to say. Yes? No? Anybody agree with Zelda me? Zelda also with me? came out last year. That's a plus. You should finish that. <laughs> oh, yes, it did too. That's true. In fact, a whole new console came out last year, which is probably oh, part yeah. of the reason that 2000. <laughs> 2017 was something really special where everybody had their switches and fell immediately in love with them unlike usual for nintendo consoles um and that was certainly a, a good thing to get everybody excited so no, no, no. nintendo consoles work in like the the first console's great the second console's crap so nes was great snares no wait that doesn't work the 64 was great the gamecube no one really loved then the wii was great everyone loved that and the wii u no one really loved and the switch i yeah well i i, I have to... <laughs> I, I will never forget going down and buying my 3DS on launch day, pre-ordering it actually, uh, and then going down and buying it on launch day and having nothing to play for like the first six months of that <laughs> console's life. So, um, yeah, the the Switch is certainly not that. The Switch was off to a, a bang and never really slowed down since. It's been 
I mean, we obviously haven't had stuff like Mario Odyssey, Fire Emblem Warriors, and Zelda released on the Switch so far this year, but we've had some pretty good stuff. Sushi Strike is really good fun, genuinely really good fun. Um, it's a highlight for me so far. And, you know, Bayonetta and Bayonetta 2 came out, and first time they've been portable, which has been great. So, yeah, the Switch has had, had a pretty good start to the year, I'd say, overall. Captain Toad's on the way. Captain Toad. I will finally play Captain Toad when that comes out because I missed it before when it came out on Wii U. Have you grabbed the demo yet? Is there a demo for it? There's a demo. There's a demo. Was released this week, I think. The Switch eShop is very good at hiding demos (laughs) because you have to like if you want to see a demo of upcoming games, you have to like change the search settings to include. Yeah, I didn't find where it was first out. Everyone's like, oh, the demo's out. I'm like looking for the store. I'm like, it's not there. I switched to America region. It's not there. I switched to Japan. It's not there. I'm like, where's this demo? And then like a few days later, I looked at the e-store and I'm like, oh, there we go. Captain Toad. And it's got like free demo. I click on it and I just get the demo. But yeah, sometimes that happens. It's really weird. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting story, uh, Trent. Thank you Sorry. for sharing. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, Trent. I had the same issue. I feel you. There's, there's apparently a demo for um, Shining Resonance Refrain as well. There is, um, which I'm not touching because I also have this thing about demos where I, I don't play them um, because I prefer to have the full game sitting there in front of me uh, when I sit down to play it. And... I'm doing the same with Project Octopath as well. I know the demo's quite meaty and progress carries over, but I don't want to get to the end of, end of the demo and be like, well, I've got to wait now for the full game to come out. So that's just me being a little bit weird. But yeah, there's an awful lot of demos at the moment to play on the Switch, which almost can make up for, um, I guess, the the lack of new games if you haven't had a chance to you know, get into any of them so far for the first half of the year. The lack of games on Switch. And yeah, the lack of games on Switch. <laughs> Where you can play together with Xbox friends, but not Sony friends. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes, but I don't have any Xbox friends because they're all losers. So <laughs> I have an Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't have any friends, full stop. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's, let's not talk about Switch. Let's talk about other stuff. Let's talk about well, PlayStation, I guess, being the other obvious one. Um, what would you say about the, the PlayStation so far this year? Priscilla, have you... Has there been anything that's kind of stood out for you as um, you know, really memorable for the first half of 2018? There's been a few games that I've wanted to play, but 2018 is the first year where I've been playing my Nintendo console over my PS4 console. But I'd say the only games that have really caught my eye have been the big ones like Detroit and God of War. And I bought... Yakuza yesterday, but I haven't played it yet. But I've heard amazing things about it. Oh, you're in for a good time. That's um, that's definitely a highlight of this year so far. I think we can all agree on that, right? That's one of those rare games that we, the entire DDNet team, agrees on. Um, Yakuza Six is a good so. game. Does even Alan agree yeah. on that? I think yes, even Alan agrees oh, on that. Wow. So he's he's not going to curse us out while he's editing, editing this podcast <laughs> um, for talking yeah. about games. We're all thinking Zero is better though. Yeah, it's it's a difficult one. I think you know Zero was 
I think Zero really put Yakuza on the map for people in the West. I think it was the first time that Sega really pushed the Yakuza series in a meaningful way, and it really caught people's attention. And I think we talked about it a bit in previous podcasts, but the share button really helped Yakuza Zero take off because all of a sudden people were realizing, hey, this isn't, this isn't just a Japanese clone of GTA. It has a sense of humor. It's got all this great stuff, and let's give it a go. And they all kind of fell in love with it. Yakuza 6 was always going to struggle to follow up on that, I think, because it just doesn't have that newness factor for a lot of people but yeah i don't know i, I like them both for, for different reasons i mean you don't get to be a daddy in yakuza zero so <laughs> the, the daddy is a selling that. point for me i love daddy <laughs> but that's why <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll never forget the scene where you have to you have to wander around hiroshima with this kid that keeps screaming every couple of minutes and you have to settle it down that's um that's, that's a true place to real <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a truly memorable moment of video game history. I think. Um, I don't know what else. Let's talk about Dynasty Warriors Nine. I want to say that because everybody's going to hate me for saying that's the highlight of the year, but I don't care. You're all wrong. It's an amazing game, and Jim Sterling can go bite the big one. Um, <laughs> I really like Yakuza. Uh, I really like Dynasty Warriors Nine, and I've been playing it a lot. I haven't actually stopped really playing. I keep pulling it out, you know, for my relaxed time while I'm playing games not for review and stuff and it's it's yeah it's it's a really great game I I, I honestly don't get uh, a lot of the criticisms of, criticisms of that one and the patches have certainly made it an even better experience you like the uh, it's at launch Matt uh, are you still a fan of Dynasty Warriors 9 or if you cooled off it a bit um, no I still, I'm still a fan I haven't played it that much since I reviewed it whenever it was but i really enjoyed it then and i have fond memories of it and if i ever have a chance to play games that i'm not reviewing i'll go back to it and play it some more yeah sure it's sure. a, a, a good it's a good game and i don't, don't quite understand why lots of people were so hostile to it yeah, it's it's an odd one. I think people probably expected a certain thing from Dynasty Warriors. They didn't get it from this one. You know, we'll talk about it probably yeah. a little bit in the next section. But this that game was certainly a lot more focused on the actual characters and uh, representing the history of the period. So uh, I think uh, a lot of people don't come to Dynasty Warriors for the history for some reason. I don't know. People are weird is the point. Um, some okay, people just want to play a game. <laughs> Uh, well, it's still a game if you're playing it for the <laughs> historical context. It's like you're still reading a novel if you read Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, but you certainly want it to have history in it. Um, but Trent, what about you? When you've been, when you've actually pulled yourself away from the Switch, what has been your highlights of the year to date? Nino Kumi came out this year, right? It did. Yes. yes. Not the original. The original came out a few yes. years ago. Yes, obviously the sequel I'm referring to. Yes. Well, that's, that was definitely one of my highlights this year because um, I haven't actually even played the original in the series. So this was a new series for me. I didn't know what to expect. All I know is, all I knew was basically it was Studio Ghibli, you know, for the art style, that sort of thing. And, you know, other than that, you know, it was sort of a JRPG and that was basically all I had in my head to expect. And I was actually quite surprised in terms of how the game played, the story. Um, I liked the town building mechanics. I liked to level up my town and basically, uh, you know, collect resources so I could level the town up. <laughs> I know I was grinding a little bit more near the end to just do that rather than actually playing the game. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I found it quite good. Yeah, I, 
I, I don't know. Uh, did you? I, I know you didn't, Trent, but did anybody play the original Nino Kuni and have opinions on how it kind of the the sequel either continued that franchise or changed it because it changed quite a little bit, uh, quite a lot actually, um, compared to the original. Um, I only played a little bit of the original, and you're going to be very angry at me when I say this, Matt. I really hated the little fairy guy in the original, so <gasps> Nino Kuni 2 was a big improvement for me just with him not being there. Aside oh, from no. that, yeah, I enjoyed the game, but yeah. The little fairy <laughs> guy was the bestest. He plushy. He, 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 he reminded me of a minion, and I just couldn't handle that. That's so sad. <laughs> but he was so cool, and he had an, he, if you put on the Japanese voice track, he had an Osaka accent, which was cool. You know, he was cool. He was really cool. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sorry. So, I'm actually shook. I'm, I'm I don't play games to read. <laughs> I'm very sad right now because I thought the little fairy guy in Nino Kuni 2 was a, a pain in the backside. I didn't like him at all. Um, but Drippy, hey, the hey, hero yeah. of Nino Kuni, yeah. he was great. Yeah, I so, anyway. the sequel one, the, that guy was kind of a bit obnoxious, sort of, you know, trying to be a bit too cool i think you know aiming for the kids that sort of generation sort of gap sort of thing i just don't know why (laughs) i just don't know why he was there he just played no role whatsoever at least drippy from nino kuni had a role this guy's just there um it's just like it's like they thought oh there was this irritating fairy dude in the first one we need to have an irritating fairy dude in the second one without actually thinking how they put him in there uh-huh. um, you, you, you can see that he was irritating yes but that's the point that's why he was delightful <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like navi from you know ocarina of time where he was irritating by accident he was clearly meant to be irritating for art and they succeeded you know you can't hold it against the developer to succeeding i can't um, why they wanted to put an irritating in the first place, but we're getting off track. We are a little bit. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we got too much other positive stuff to talk about so far for for the year. I mean, oh, um, I have to say, Atelier. Um, I, I'd be very wrong if I didn't mention that this year's Atelier game was particularly strong. Uh, I felt because it's kind of an annual franchise for some reason now. Uh, they they do churn them out one a year. And every year's been, you know, the, the series is reliably good fun, but I thought that this year um, was something truly special. I, I absolutely love the characters and the story of this one well beyond what uh, I've had from previous Atelier games. And as everybody knows, I'm a huge fan of the series in the first place. So I was just uh, absolutely blown away with what Atelier offered this year, which was a good thing. Um, and if you haven't played Atelier game before, for the love of God, please do so I can stop talking about these games to people who haven't played them. <laughs> I'm kind of getting sick of that. You played it, right, Matt? You played Atelier. I haven't, Lady. Played, the, I haven't played the new one, no. Oh. I own game. the new one. Oh, good. good. Play it. Now that you've finished Zelda, now that you've finished Zelda, you can I'm start this. Tracker. I'll play it. I promise. And the good thing is these games actually know their, um, they, they know their length. They don't go too long. I think this one, I don't know. 30 hours, I'd say, max. They're not... It's not going to take you know, half your life up like certain other JRPGs do these days. Um, it's nice and sweet and to the point and relatively short, which is great. It's exactly what you need. Um, 
other than that, it's just been a whole stream of crap from 2018 so far. I have to say, yeah, there there is one other game worth a mention, um, which is where the where the water tastes like wine. Yes, I, I know you haven't played Matt, and I assume other people on this podcast haven't played, but that was a very good game about basically about storytelling and about how like folklore and myths and those kind of things grow and evolve as they are passed down through word of mouth and yeah how stories kind of take on a life of their own um set during sort of depression era united states with yeah very interesting with a lot of great um writing and voice acting and for some reason it got slammed a lot because it wasn't enough of a game or something i don't know um people <laughs> yeah i actually i did actually go and buy this one um after i saw that it sold like five thousand copies worldwide um on release i i felt very bad for the developers because they've clearly put a lot of effort into it and they got critics to the most you know ridiculous stupid reasons um so i have a copy sitting there waiting for me to play it and i'm looking forward to giving it a go it also has sting's voice in it um as in the artist music artist sting um and he's pretty good i like sting i'm not entirely sure if that was the best idea because it probably cost a lot of money and i don't know that it adds that much to the game but what are you talking about add sting <laughs> It's self-evidently a good thing to do, Matt. <laughs> he is—he is very good on that. <laughs> he's, 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 um, he's a wolf. <laughs> yeah, wolf in real life, a wolf in the game. Uh, yes. On that note, we'll go to some music, um, and we'll come back and talk about something a bit different. The music we picked is actually from Pokemon Blue. We had people twist my arm on this one because apparently there was some update to Pokemon Go or something this week, so. We needed to tie into what the events of the week were. Uh, I haven't played Pokemon Go for like 12 months because I got bored. But apparently other people are still playing it and um, the Pokemon music's good anyway. So enjoy and we'll be back to talk about stuff.
Welcome back, everybody, and uh, apologies for a little bit of crackling from Matt's microphone over the last section. We have that fixed, I think, so he should sound crisp and clear in his wonderful New Zealand accent now. Um, yes, we're back. So for the second section of the podcast, we are going to talk about historical figures in video games because most of us like our historical-based video games, I guess, and I think... One of the things that's uh, one of the common, common debates, I guess, debating points about this topic is how how realistic or how authentic should uh, the characters be when they're represented in video games. So, Matt, uh, as a big fan of historically based video games yourself, and I, I guess particularly Hakuoki, we all know that you're a huge fan of that one. Um, how did you find the representation of the historical characters? And further, do you think do you think the developers should aim for realism or something else when they present historical characters in games? Um, I find Hakuoku really good in terms of the authenticity of it, um, and I think maybe part of that is that there's not a lot else in terms of actual like textbooks or actual proper reading material for that period that's available in English. So your choices are limited and even though it's fiction, the the parts of Hakuoki that are based on real life are very authentic and accurate in a way that makes it a good learning experience. As long as you can compartmentalize and realize that okay, the vampire part is not not, not real. <laughs> is it? Well, that may be up for debate, but I don't think it's it's <laughs> real. Um, but but yeah, I, th I think it, it's really good at at kind of meshing. It, it goes into a lot of like detail about just like the sequence of events and the various battles and things that happened um, and what we know about the personalities of those characters, which again, it's a tricky period because there is a lot that we don't, that isn't well recorded and a lot of like conflicting, um, I guess, historical records. Um, and so there is a certain degree of, I guess, speculation that has to go into that. But in terms of what, we do know now I think is accurate as as accurate as it can be and then it uses the fictional element to kind of paint over the blanks quite well yeah it's interesting there's a bit of a I guess an east and west divide in how they do these kinds of historical based games um, Hakuoki is a more muted I guess example but if you look at Assassin's Creed or whatever um, those games when they feature historical characters go kind of right out there to, to do them as you know accurately as possible. So I still remember playing an Assassin's Creed 3 and running into Samuel Adams and I'm like, oh, so that's that who that dude is that I keep drinking beer. <laughs> um, so, you know, they're, they're quite 
literal attempts at, at putting those characters into games, whereas you look at um, majority of games from Japan that use historical characters, and it's a little bit different. So the example I always like to give is Samurai Warriors, which is, you know, my favorite. Uh, and I went to a battlefield in Japan that um, Samurai Warriors actually depicts, um, and I can't pronounce it, so don't ask me to, but it was a battle between Shingen Takeda and uh, Osegi Kenshin. And at that battlefield uh, in the real Japan, uh, there is a statue that, or statues that depict the battle and the two principal figures. And as the legend goes, uh, Usagi Kenshin actually, in this particular battle, managed to get all the way up to uh, Takeda's battle tent, uh, his command tent, and actually break in. And Takeda only managed to survive by beating or deflecting a couple of attacks using his uh, war fan, which is um, it's basically a, a bit of wood that they used to, to fan themselves, keep themselves cool at battle. It certainly wasn't a weapon. Anyway, um, point being that by the time you get to Samurai Warriors, the, you, you see these characters and they're wielding the, the most ridiculous weapons you can imagine. And you're like, okay, so where did this come from? But Takeda's weapon is actually a war fan. So that comes, that comes from the real story. And then Usagi Kenshin has a sword, which is completely impractical because it's got kind of prongs flying off everywhere and you can Google search it. But the point of that sword in the game is that those prongs uh, actually represent the number of strikes that he had on uh, Takeda. There's seven. So he managed to take seven swings at Takeda. So even though these weapons look completely ridiculous uh, and the character designs are completely ridiculous, everything about those games is actually based in kind of a real history. So I guess Kotecmo, you know, they do that to, to make the games vibrant and interesting and, um, you know, very Japanese. But when you, if you're interested enough in it, you can then research and find out where the designs come from, where the characters come from. And it's actually quite a, it's an interesting learning process, I think. And uh, I certainly got into Japanese history thanks to the interest I had in the way that Samurai Warriors was built. So anyway, that's, um, I think that's how I like to see uh, games do historical characters. They don't need to be accurate or authentic. Uh, I don't mind how Assassin's Creed does it, but I don't need that. I, sorry. I, when I say accurate, I mean realistic. Uh, I, I do want them to be authentic in the sense that they need to be based on the real history in some way. Uh, otherwise, it's just kind of nonsense to me. And there are other games that just throw in character names because they were in history and don't do anything with it, which I don't like so much. Anyway, um, Trent and Priscilla, I know you both have not played quite so many kind of historical-based games, but if you... I mean, have you ever played a, a game that's kind of made you interested in in history? And, you know, when you play those kinds of more historical-based games or games that are used, used historical characters, what do you like to see in the way that the characters are portrayed? I like to see uh, basically be pretty realistic, uh, as you said, or at least authentic. Um, there's got to be some sort of, you know, you don't look at it and be like, oh, well, They've changed, obviously, this character to suit the needs of this game and made him a drunk, alcoholic, you know, crazy man who runs down the street naked or something. But in real life, he was a cold, hard-ass military man. I don't know, like, something like that. Like, I, I, like we don't want things which are completely off the beaten track in terms of diverging from the characters. But it's always good to have something a little bit more, you know, grounded and authentic to what things were in, in historical things because basically if, if if you don't even know that they're historical characters and you like 
played him and you're like, oh, wait a minute, I heard about this guy before. And you research him or her and, and figure out what actually happened in that period of time. And that sort of gives you a learning experience, I guess. <laughs> so it's, it's always good to have that. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the point you can make that uh, real history is actually pretty boring most of the time. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the battlegrounds of yore were not exactly glamorous affairs and uh, the people were not necessarily the most photogenic people, let's put it that way. Um, so you need to introduce that element of fantasy to get people interested. Uh, and realism kind of hurts, can hurt that. But I, I guess it's about doing the fantasy in a way that doesn't, you know, crap over the history at the, sa at the same time. Um, in saying that, I also think there is a huge untapped market for, I guess, documentary games or maybe, I don't know what you'd call them, interactive documentaries or something so that that use the game form as a way of exploring the the real history and the realistic, accurate history um, and using, I guess, using that too. To make that more interesting and engaging than just reading a textbook. Oh yeah, as long as you don't censor the dongs on the Statue of David. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, I think that thing that Assassin's Creed did was uh, brilliant uh, overall. I thought the censorship thing was a bit off, but um, <laughs> I, I thought the the history mode in Assassin's Creed Origins was really great. And like you said, you know, if if kids are going to be much more interested in the history if they're playing an interactive kind of game um that does do the that is focused on the educational side of things then i think i think that's so much better than the textbook especially since you know the kids that get really into it are going to go and read the textbooks anyway because they're engaged with it all of a sudden um and i remember my own history classes back in school where we were kind of shoved textbooks in front of us and told us to told to read about ancient egypt <laughs> um i actually got put right off ancient egypt after that and uh i i had no interest in learning more about the history until uh, much later on. Um, but Civilization, I remember, uh, the Civilization II, when I played it, I got so fascinated in the kind of the great wonders that I went and researched a bunch of them. Um, and I learned a lot thanks to that game. So, yeah, games can be very, very educational, I guess, is the point. Uh, would you, Priscilla, um, when Poppy's of an age, uh, will you be putting historical games in front of her and selling her to play them and learn stuff about the world? <laughs> I think so. I was going to say before, one of the things that I like to see in them, I haven't played many of them, but if I was, um, other than authenticity, obviously, um, learning about them in an engaging way that makes you want to learn more afterwards, like going and researching the figure, that's what I'd like to see and if Poppy can learn more in that way I'd be glad to let her do that yeah it's um I, I guess for the longest time games were seen as just kind of brainless entertainment as such um or you know something you do to unwind after the day I think we're just starting to really explore the potential value of games beyond that and it's, it makes me really happy to see, you know, actual AAA publishers like like Ubisoft itself actually involve itself in that side of things. I think that's a that's a good sign for the rest of the industry. Um, 
if it then encourages the likes of Activision and EA to grow up and start representing World War II properly, then so much the better, I think. Because um, there is that you know uh, issue, I guess, with the AAA publishers going for pure entertainment as stuff that they are teaching people the wrong thing <laughs> um, with some of their games. And I think the challenge to the industry will be to make sure that people know when they're playing something that is completely unrepresentative of history versus something that's trying to be genuinely uh, a historical record. Because at the moment, I don't think that line is particularly well drawn. Because I know there are a lot of people that seem to think that Battlefield 1 and Call of Duty World War 2 are somehow based in what actually happened through those wars, which is just nonsense for anybody who knows anything about either of them. It'll be worrying if um, basically as more games become more historical, if things like Battlefield or Call of Duty, if they don't, and then suddenly kids are like, well, all my other games are historical. These must be historical. And then sort of warp their perception. That could also be, you know, the reverse of, you know, if you're not parenting or educating people properly when playing games or handling, you know, obviously, you know, last week we we're discussing, you know, you made an article about the, you know, games being now addictive, but as a category of, you know, a mental disorder, like, you know, if those things aren't handled, then obviously you're going to run into issues where people are perceiving games as factual. If the majority of games are going to be starting to become more historical with more historical references. And I think that's already kind of happening, unfortunately. And I, I know that Activision was especially was really out there talking about how, you know, how heavily they researched Call of Duty World War II, which is just, it annoys me <laughs> and i'm not going to talk any more about it any because i could go on a hour-long rant but it annoys me that they're talking about this game as though these games as though they're historically accurate they're not yeah. um, maybe they, they researched the history and just chose not to include not to pay research in the actual game <laughs> <laughs> they still researched it they can still say that <laughs> yeah that's true they probably did no they probably researched the guns and then made the and guns, even. guns anyway yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but before we actually get into that rant, I think we'll go to a break because yeah, we could go on forever um, and just get angrier and angrier. We'll listen to some happy music. Uh, we picked some music from a game that does try to be very historically accurate, um, Nobunaga's Ambition this time around. So enjoy. If you enjoy the music, uh, <laughs> give the game a go and be prepared to listen to it a lot because Nobunaga's Ambition is a very... Uh, serious strategy game. You'll be sitting there in front of your TV for a long time each time you play, and you will listen to this kind of music on repeat an awful lot. We'll be back and we'll talk about a JRPG series that Matt in particular, other Matt, really loves.
Welcome back, everybody. So, for the final section of the podcast this week, we are going to look back at a JRPG series that probably deserves a lot more respect than it has, I think, from the broader industry. I think JRPG fans are pretty aware of how good it is, but I think a lot of people uh, still haven't really heard about this one. Uh, it's sold well. We had the news coverage this week that I think the series has sold, what, three million units or something, um, I guess, principally in Japan, but... It's starting to grow out here in the West as well. <clears throat> and the series, of course, I'm talking about is Trails of Cold Steel, um, which is part of the, I don't even know what... Legend of Heroes. Legend of Heroes series. That, that, that very that. inspiring and not at all generic name. Yeah, I think that's probably part of the problem this, this series has. You look at it and you think initially, oh, this is just a low-budget kind of um, generic JRPG. And it comes to us from Nihon Falcom, um, which is a specialist in low-budget, generic-looking JRPGs. <laughs> but, um, you know, this... I was given a copy of the first one to review, went in not expecting much, and it was one of those games where I ended up spending an entire weekend absolutely glued to the screen. That's how good it was when I first played it. And I became a very big fan immediately after, and that's from having basically no knowledge about this game beforehand. So, yeah, it's they're good, aren't they, Matt? They're good. They're very good. I had not pretty much identical experience which is that i'd vaguely heard of this legend of heroes series and mostly it just didn't register because it was called the legend of heroes and not anything interesting um (laughs) (laughs) and then yeah i got a review copy of the um first trails of cold steel and was fell in love with it and I, f- I feel like at this point it's worth just to clarify so it's a very big long-running sp- series that began and i think the 80s is like the first games are on um NES, and it's been running every ever since and but it's kind of broken down into little sub-series kind of thing so it's a very it's a complex sort of chronology if you will and but then the trails of cold steel is the most recent sub-series of that and i think is probably the best of the ones that i've played and has deservedly got the most attention i think um yeah yeah so there's like you said they do stretch back a long way and it's the subtitle that you want to look at uh as to which one you're playing because they're kind of distinct from one another. I don't know yeah. if they take place in the same world, but they are distinct enough that yeah. um, you know if you if you do love the Trails of Cold Steel series, that's no guarantee that you'll love the ones that came before. As I discovered when I played some of the ones before, uh, and that's maybe a discussion for the podcast. I don't really like the Legends of Heroes series as such, but Trails of the Cold of Cold Steel in particular uh, is is. Right up there with my favourite JRPGs, I think. Yeah. Uh, we're up to four now, uh, two of which are in English. So we've still got two to wait, uh, two to come, but they are all direct sequels from one another. And combined, I think you probably, we were talking about this off air, but I think you're probably looking about 300 hours worth of story across all of them. They're all very big kind of uh, epic uh, RPGs. And this is one of those rare cases where the length actually benefits them because of the story that they're trying to tell, I think. Uh, they need to be long because they are 
positioned as historical epics as such and uh, the growth of the characters and the politics of the world basically require an awful lot of time to really explore properly. And that, yeah, I think that's the, really well, the heart that you got to the heart of it. So each one is about 60 to 80 hours long, depending on how much time you spend doing things. Um, but you look, yeah, you're looking at, I think, a minimum of 60 hours just to rush through it and, and see that, see all the main story stuff. But they are the rare sort of games that justify that length. Um, and I think a lot of it is just, as you said, so it's a very complicated, well, it's set with, within this, this very complicated political landscape where you've got, and basically, and I don't. I don't want to say evil is not the right word because it's not really a good and evil type story. But it's it's focused on this empire that does what empires do and conquers other lands, um, and so it's set around a lot of the internal political conflict about what they're actually doing and should they be doing that, and um, and then it, from from there it builds on, and so you spend a lot of time basically visiting other towns and villages and countries that have been um, conquered by this empire and not always in a militaristic way, but in some way or another have been assimilated. And so it spends a lot of time looking quite closely at how that's affected the different people within this world. Um, and yeah, so it's very very slow paced and which I think puts a, a lot of people off, but I think it needs to be because it uses that to, um, what's the word? I, yeah. Ex explore how, how it, this grand sweeping imperial, um, drive of the, the ruling government and how that affects people on the ground in a, in a very realistic and, a, yeah, a realistic sort of believable and insightful way. And that's yeah, something... I mean, if it if it didn't take its time, it would be it, it would run the risk of, I guess, becoming one of those kind of good versus evil situations, you know, because yeah. they wouldn't really be able to explore the motivations of all the various parties and uh, mm -hmm. you know all the various points of view. And it does a really good job of you know, kind of basically justifying or at least explaining the perspective of just about every you know, um, every, every antagonist within the world or every, um, every victim, every, uh, every group of people, it does a really good job of really providing, providing that nuance that basically conflict is never, you know, one side, good, one side, evil. There's always, uh, or almost always, <laughs> almost always a, a greater nuance to it. And I think that plus the fact that it, has such a large cast of characters on that that you're actually controlling your party because mm. the the structure of the game is basically you start out with a group of, a class of students at a military academy uh very young very green they're just about to go out on the, they go out on their first missions in the first game and all that and you watch them grow and become much more important people uh within the context of the world over the course of those games let me guess and, all the military people are like all the antagonists in the game 
No, no, no. You're actually no. part of a military academy yourself, oh, and you actually yeah. go out on missions as no, part right, of this military like all academy. Your friends and stuff from the academy, like all go out to become like the other parties. No, 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 no. no sure. It actually, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> most of the game, or at least the the ones that I've played, um, they they spend time becoming closer, a closer and closer knit group, and. The relationships that develop between the characters become deeper and deeper and you become very emotionally involved with them all because uh even the ones that start off a little bit standoffish for example you know at the very start of the game there's a conflict between one dude that comes from an aristocratic family and one dude that hates the aristocracy and watching there that uh, you know any any almost any other jrpg would treat that very you know um very limited and they just something had happened and then all of a sudden they'd be best friends but watching how that relationship between those two characters evolves through the trials of cold steel game is much deeper and much more emotive and much more interesting as a result yeah um so i, I really love the way the game explores relationships um and i this is one of those rare games where i don't don't not like a character <laughs> yeah. um I, I like them all and that's really rare for me in a jrpg uh, i have you know favorites elisa um, but at least by a long way. Um, uh, but you know, I, I like them all, which is rare. Yeah. And I, th and I think that gets to the point also is that we've probably made it sound very dry by talking about the, how it deals with like war and politics and stuff, but it's really not. It's a lot, it's through, through the characters. It's a lot of fun. It's quite, it's very entertaining and enjoyable as well as being deep and nuanced and complicated um and it kind of to it sort of is almost persona like in some ways and just around the school element and so there is that element of relationship building where you choose who to spend your time with Elisa. um and which always elisa for for matt is always elisa um and then as just as a side point to that one thing i really like is that it's not it's not a, a persona game where it's that relationship side is about choosing a waifu um it is you will anyway because it's lisa but you will you, you will <laughs> but um kind of so the 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 main you've got your main character um and all the other his classmates and teachers and stuff and all the people who you can work on these relationships with that's to some extent predefined um how they relate to each other so elisa is the only one you can have a romantic relationship with because that's the way that their, their story is set up um and if you p choose to pursue that then that's great you'll see how that plays out but alternatively you can if you focus on other characters you'll see how their sort somewhat predefined relationship turn um, grows and develops so it's not if you choose to spend time with laura it's not saying she's the one gonna I, end up making babies yeah, she's, yeah she's, exactly. she's the one i want to to be my girlfriend so i'm trying to make her my girlfriend it's seeing how their their relationship evolves into from the perspective of both being sword sword fighters from esteemed sword fighting families and the the pressures that come with that and with all the training um yeah it's it's very interesting to see how, just, how all these different threads weave together and it's so well written too i think is the thing um you don't expect it i guess because you always go into a, a um 
a kind of B tier JRPG expecting a certain degree of um, how can I put it in a way that's not going to sound really bad <laughs> a certain degree of immaturity about the writing uh, either yeah. because the writers are relatively young or perhaps they're just not good enough to end up working for one of the top like to, to end up working on a persona game or something um, but in this case the, the writing's absolutely spot on I would yeah. if this was novelized I would read this as a novel quite happily and uh, I would think it's you know it's a perfectly um, it's a perfectly well written uh, fantasy uh, epic so yeah. again that's really rare it's it's not common that you come across uh, a JRPG that's able to sustain a narrative with such quality writing across well, at least two games. I'm assuming the other two that are coming um, will also be of the same quality. So, you know, as, lo- as, as long as Exceed gets to localize them and not and not Nipponichi. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Nipponichi, if you're listening, I do love you, but you, you really did screw up on Yis Eight, <laughs> um, and you still screwed up on it, even though you already had a good translation with the Nintendo Switch version. So please don't localize Trails of Cold Steel, even though they did. Um, they did yeah. the first one, didn't they? No, no, they've both been. Exit. No, they haven't. I think they, um, the, it was a slightly complicated thing where I think Nipponichi published the, published it in Europe. Ah, uh, right. But yeah, the yeah, actual yeah, localization yeah. work was done was done by. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that is also part of why the quality. Not just to say that Exceed is better, but they have one very small team. I think it's like one translator and one editor who have basically dedicated their whole lives to the series and that creates a consistency yeah, yeah, that absolutely. drives a lot of the quality. And I think whoever the other, uh, whoever it was, if it, the other games got vocalized by different people, it would be, something would be lost just because of different, having different people working on it. Yep, I, I agree. It takes longer to do, but please, um, publishers, listening. <coughs> If you're localizing the game, one localizer, um, not a team, <laughs> one, because you want that consistency across the tone of the game, yeah. and uh, that's not going to happen if you have more than if you have a team working on it. So, um, and Atlas, I'm yeah. looking at you in particular there. <laughs> <laughs> and also, we haven't really talked about it, but the gameplay is good too. If you, if that's what, oh yeah, what, um, what, what interests you about JRP? <laughs> it's quite, it's a. Not it's it's, it's turn based. It's sort of it's not like a tactical RPG, like Final Fantasy Tactics kind of thing. But it has some elements of that that come to play in quite unique and interesting ways. Um, For people who have played it, it's probably closest, if anything, to Hyperdimension Neptunia. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good a good comparison, actually. But not quite so ridiculously stupid and. Um, <laughs> Not quite so fan servicey, let's put it that way. But yeah, yeah you got a bit of freedom to move around, um, and then you know a, a lot of skills and a lot of the the strategy or tactics or or uh, thought behind the game requires you to to make good use of your characters working in concert together and yeah. matching skills together and stuff. It's quite deep. Uh, it, it's good. It's classical, uh, modern classical kind of turn based yeah. game, which is which is it's less common these days i guess so it's nice to have one so i guess um 
we're running out of time, but uh, the reason that Matt and I have been talking about it exclusively (laughs) is we're the only two here on the podcast that have actually played it. So I guess to wrap up, I want to ask Trent and Priscilla, have we sold you on the game? Are you going to go and play it now? (laughs) If you can find the 300 hours. (laughs) Well, other than the time that it takes, I think that's the hardest thing. You've sold me on it. I like the character development and building relationships, not just romantically, but to find out more about the other characters' lives and things like that, as well as the combat. That sounds fun. Having played Hyperdimension Neptunia, I can picture what it would be like in my head. And I like the idea of the story and all the politics and things like that as well. So it does sound like it's right up my alley, which is probably why I bought it, but I haven't got around (laughs) to playing it. And what about you, Trent? I know you're not the world's biggest fan of JRPGs, but is this one one that you would consider giving a go at some point in time if you had the chance? I'd give them a go if they're good. But um, at the end of the day, you know, 300 hours. Like, come <laughs> on, who has the time for that? Um, <laughs> I, 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 I feel like it's worth clarifying that, particularly for the first game, it's it, you can compartmentalise it quite well and in terms of just the way that the game is broken up into chapters. Yeah. Um, so it is, it is part of an overarching story that ramps up, but each chapter, you can pr- basically play a chapter over the course of five or 10 hours, however, however long it takes, leave it for three months, come back and pick up where you left off without having like to worry too much about details that you've forgotten. Yeah, it's nicely episodic, I guess, in structure, which helps. Um, yeah. And when we say 300 hours, of course, we are talking across four games, of which two are not out. So if you were to pick yeah. up the first one, <laughs> if you were to pick up the first one, yes, you don't get a completely self-contained story because the ending leaves itself open to you know, following on to the second. But you do get a full game, um, which will only take around 60 to 80 hours to play. And it only. feels it, it's much more man- it's much yeah. more manageable when yeah. it's broken down into those kinds of chunks. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it doesn't. And on top of that, like I said, you get really hooked on it and it doesn't ever feel like it's a grind. It's never, yeah. it, it's slow paced and it's methodical about how it goes about what it's doing, but you'll never get bored with it because you're just running around doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and that's really important. Uh, the, the, the difficulty of it is balanced perfectly, so you never really need to grind. So it's it's sixty hours of actual progress, not sixty hours of content. I guess is the way. I, to... hate, I hate JRPGs where you basically it's like, oh well, you're you are like level ten for like twenty minutes now, but like suddenly you're like on the new chapter, so you have to actually be level twenty now to actually do anything. Yeah, no, no, it, it's, it's nothing like that. It's perfectly. Like that. It also it also has like about eight different difficulty levels, and the easiest ones of which basically. You can forget about the combat. It'll play it basically yourself. So you yeah, you you, you really would just be running through the story uh, as though it was a visual novel almost. Um, oh, good, like Persona. Great. Yes, I play. That's yes. how I play Persona with the lowest difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's the best way to play Persona, especially Persona Five, which is an example of a game that is about <laughs> you know, three times too long because of its stupid grinding. Um, but that's a, another conversation yeah, for another patient. Uh, on play that trails, note, play Trails of Cold Steel. Play Trails are called still. You can get it on PlayStation 3, uh, <clears throat> PlayStation Vita, and I believe PC right now. Uh, there's also a place. Switch. Everything needs to be on the Switch. 
PlayStation 4 version coming, which will have both first and second games in the one package. Is that, and I think... Is that, con- is that confirmed for... That came out earlier in this year in Japan, but I don't... Has it been... I want to say I'm 99% sure it has been announced for the West. Um, right. Saying that, I'm probably wrong. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, there is that package. Hopefully it comes out West, and then hopefully that's followed with the third and fourth. God knows there are enough fans of this series absolutely yelling for it. So I yep. hope X8 is listening. I think they are. I like to think they're a good team. And on that note, we'll go to some music from Trails Cold Steel, and we will be back next week with some more podcasting action. Thanks very much for listening, everybody, and thanks for being on the podcast, everybody else. 